0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the third episode of USAID Leads. Today we're going to discuss how USAID leverages innovation to find solutions to development challenges. We'll also be talking about the launch of the Smart Communities Coalition with MasterCard. Following our conversation with Administrator Green, we'll delve deeper into these topics with two of our own agency experts. To wrap things up, we'll check back in with the administrator with a look at what's around the corner. Administrator Green, thank you so much for joining us for another episode of USAID Leads.
1: Great. It's good to be with you, as always.
0: Since we last talked, you traveled to Raqqa, Syria and Baghdad, Iraq. In fact, I think you're the most senior civilian official from the administration to visit Syria. Any moments that were key takeaways for you? Is there anything that stands out upon returning back to the U.S.?
1: Sure. A couple of things, one perhaps external and one internal. On the external side is just the level of destruction that is apparent in Raqqa. Uh, you know, we often see images on TV screens, see them in magazines. Those are two-dimensional images. The three-dimensional is terrifying, to, to be honest. Uh, a couple of times as I did a windshield tour with General Votel, we drove all around Raqqa. You would look down a road and see that the destruction goes back all the way to the horizon. There was not one building I saw that didn't have signs of damage from uh, artillery, explosives, and so on and so forth. Related to that, we saw clear signs and sights from uh, the evil reign of ISIS. We walked by a couple of cells underneath a soccer stadium that were used for torture. We saw places where uh, ISIS had displayed the bodies of executed victims. So again, true evil. We. Toss that term around too easily these days, but this is evil very clearly and very obviously. We also saw signs of uh, the perseverance of the human spirit. You would see people uh, trying to restore their lives. Uh, I remember seeing uh, women selling fruit in fruit stands. I remember seeing a little shop uh, trying to open up, Uh, didn't have all that much to sell, as you might imagine. Despite the damage all around it, there was a lady sweeping off the dust from the doorstep to the shop. And I thought, here we are, she has the pride to sweep off the doorstep while all around her is, is damaged. Internally, what I saw is how well that we work with our counterparts in the Department of Defense. And uh, it really is a, a tremendous and equal partnership. That's really what I, what I saw more than anything else. Um, you know there's a lot of work ahead but if we can find ways to restore services and to tap into that human spirit then there's some hopefulness and it's certainly work that's worth doing.
0: I understand that you also met with some USAID staff members when you were out there. What did you hear from them and where do you see our focus being with regard to Syria?
1: Well with regard to Syria it is again it's trying to restore essential services and I visited an IDP camp just outside Raqqa, and one of the things that I heard, and actually General Votel had prepared me for it, was how tied to the land Syrians are, particularly those in the Raqqa region. They want to go home, and so they're looking for those kinds of uh, services that will allow them to get their lives back. We met a young mother uh, whose husband's diabetic, and the reason that she fled DACA is because they need medicine. For her husband, they couldn't get it, but uh, again, with the kind of work that our start team is undertaking, hopefully she can have those medicines so that they can go home and get some semblance of orderly lives. The work is extraordinary uh, and challenging, but as to part of your question, the team that I saw—they're uh, awfully good at what they do. Uh, you know, the reputation is that they're among the world's best, and uh, I certainly can vouch for them.
0: After your trip to the Middle East, you were back on a plane headed straight to the World Economic Forum at Davos, Switzerland. We actually have a clip from your speech there.
1: I'm often asked what excites me most as USAID administrator, technology, of course, which is allowing us to reach places and design tools that we could not have imagined just a handful of years ago. But while technology seems to grab most of the attention I honestly think that the most exciting development is the burgeoning new relationship between private enterprise and the development community. Leaders in both sectors are finally figuring out how to take advantage of the unique capabilities that each has and apply them to challenges that neither could take on fully alone. Problems that once seemed insurmountable.
0: At the World Economic Forum, you launched the Smart Communities Coalition with MasterCard. Could you tell us about it and what it means for USAID's work?
1: First off, it was rather extraordinary to go from Raqqa, Syria to uh, Davos, to the Swiss Alps. Interesting juxtaposition. And in fact, what I tried to do at at, uh, Davos is to bring a little bit of the experience in Syria so that people begin to appreciate uh, the work that we have ahead of us in terms of what uh, we met about in the Smart Communities Coalition is in fact looking for ways to help people like those that I met at the IDP camp near Raqqa have better access to services uh, to try to ensure that we are effective stewards of resources to make sure that uh, we have clarity around uh, how money is spent and also streamlining the bureaucracy that Uh, both those who are implementing partners and those who are receiving our our services often face. The Smart Communities Coalition, uh, in particular led by MasterCard, uses digital technology to help provide services but also to uh, streamline the forms and to create better oversight for how the money flows. It allows us to uh, project services more effectively and efficiently to make sure that we're uh, not losing money, that this isn't money that can fall prey to uh, fraud, waste, or or corruption. It shows what happens when we tap into these aren't even cutting-edge technologies in the private sector, they are everyday technologies in the private sector, but where we tap into those technologies and those sort of uh, market forces, it can help us in many ways.
0: With innovation being the nexus, if you will, between the private sector and USAID, Do you see the private sector having an influence on where we go development-wise down the future?
1: Well, I see it uh, uh, affecting us um, in two ways. Uh, Number one, we have to understand how the world has changed. So when USCID was created all those years ago, uh, you had about 80% of the money flowing into many developing countries being traditional development assistance. Now it's about 80% private flows, from remittances to large-scale charity to commercial investments. What we need to to understand is how that role has changed and to tap into uh, those forces. So it affects us in, um, in that sense. The second way is that we will bring the private sector into our work earlier and help us to shape programming, powered at least in part by the ingenuity of the private sector. I think we will extend our reach. I think we'll accomplish more. I think we will be more effective uh, stewards of taxpayer resources, so I think it's very exciting. I think we'll be able to undertake challenges that uh, perhaps seemed daunting not so long ago.
0: Thank you, Mr. Administrator, for taking the time to sit with us.
1: Thank you, as always.
0: Hi, everyone. We're back, and I'm now joined by Alexis Bennell from The Lab and Andrew Herzkowitz, who leads Power Africa and is joining us all the way from Pretoria. Hello to both of you, and welcome to episode three. Let's start, Andy, with you. We heard from the administrator about the Smart Communities Coalition. Why focus on energy access, connectivity, and digital tools?
2: So just to give people an idea of what the Smart Communities Coalition is, this is an effort to try to make uh, refugee camps and settlements uh, deploy technologies that they previously weren't deploying and also empowering people who are living within these communities so that they can have access to services they otherwise do not have access to. And Power Africa, what we've done is we've worked heavily on trying to get people access to electricity, particularly people who are living off the grid and refugee camps and settlements offered an opportunity for us to test some of our models while also improving people's lives. There are three pillars here under the coalition. One is the energy access, the other one is general connectivity, but the other key is the digital tools, helping people living in these settlements and and camps uh, have a digital identity where they're able to make payments and get access to services through these payments, which makes it more efficient for everyone.
0: Andy, we were talking a little bit about the rubber meeting the road when it comes to some of these innovative projects and what Power Africa has done. You have been at the forefront of seeing some of the innovations implemented out there. Uh, What can you share with us on what you've
2: seen? Sure. So we got this idea because one of the things that Power Africa has done working with uh, support from the lab scaling off-grid energy program um, is that. There are companies who are working in the off-grid space that are helping people who get access to to basic uh, tools and services, everything from televisions, electric razors, welding equipment, and water pumps, grain mills, sewing machines, things that you never would realize could be powered by a small solar panel. And what's happened is there's so much competition in this rooftop solar space that the companies are driving innovation for super-efficient appliances.
0: Alexis piggybacking off of what Andy was just talking about,
3: USAID has supported some really amazing innovations. Some of them sound so cool. Another type of innovation that we've seen is something that came out of the Development Innovation Venture Fund called EFL. If someone's living in extreme poverty, they often have no assets, no access to credit, and really don't exist as financial citizens in their world. EFL actually made and used psychometric and behavioral uh, tests to help someone understand uh, the ability to um, have credit risk, and so what we found, at first, it was like, okay, you're going to give someone a personality test. There's no way that that's going to, you know, tell us whether they're creditworthy. But we actually did that experiment, and we found that not only were they creditworthy, but they actually often had a higher repayment rate than things um, than systems we use in the West, like Experian, TransUnion, Equifax. And so I think what was so important about that is to recognize we could find innovative ways to look at how we. Im- involve and embrace someone in the economy through very uh, non-traditional approaches.
0: Alexis, in your opinion, and Andy, I'll throw this out to you too, how does a more open and innovative approach that both of you were talking about help communities become more self-reliant and more independent?
2: One of our partners, which is doing something that's really, really cool, is it's a small household solar company where they have uh, small panels that people pay a few dollars a month to use trying to get the people who are in the in the furthest reaches off the grid and what they did is they started looking at payment habits and tracking it and it was the, one of the first companies to start offering credit ratings to their customers and then they started offering them loans for education and other things so you're getting all of these customers are getting a tremendous amount of data about what their payment habits are which offers a lot of value and you're also training people on how to deploy these tools and how to service them so you're creating an entire microeconomy that's all based on this off-grid uh, solar uh, services.
3: Yeah, and I think to add on to that, you know, the whole approach of innovation, really being open and welcoming to ideas from everywhere, is I think a critical factor of moving us to self-reliance. If you think about it, over 70% of USAID's funded innovators, many of which are social entrepreneurs, are local. And connecting USAID's resources and being able to make a dynamic connection between people with local ideas to solve their own problems and be able for really the first time actually kind of empower them with the resources, the funds to try that. And I think if you look at um, really the future of many areas that where we're looking at trying to graduate to self-reliance, it's going to be based on that small social entrepreneur, these small ecosystems, as Andy mentioned, and the ability for us to move resources and nimbly and really to reward the best idea. And often at, you know the local uh, solver has an idea that's really most appropriate for them as well. Getting out of the way is a
2: constant theme of what we talk about with Power Africa. We often say, you know the difference between a person who signs up for an off-grid, you know home solar system versus a person who's waiting to get connected to the grid, can be the difference between getting connected to electricity in a day and having choice amongst a bunch of companies as to who's going to provide you power versus waiting a month, a year, a decade and hoping that the grid will arrive. So people are able to sort of control their own energy destiny by reaching out to these solar companies. And the companies realize this. And that's why they're competing with one another with more and more service offerings.
3: One of the trends that I feel like I'm seeing with uh, kind of innovation, more adaptability, but also, you know, to credit the work that Andy and so many others are doing in the field, the sense of connecting the private sector, the ecosystem, the local players, the local government, is almost this ability to shift our mentality from the beneficiary to the customer.
2: What we've seen with the off-grid companies and what we're trying to get with the Smart Communities Coalition is come up with a model where you're not selling people electricity and electrons, but you're leasing them, and you're selling them appliances that they actually want. You're selling people productive use. Electricity is just an input, but what people really want are those productive use appliances.
3: I mean, what Andy's saying is brilliant, and it's stepping back and really looking at how people are living, how they want to be living, and understanding that their energy is really a you know a gateway to you know accessing their full potential. Whether that's you know the electricity to study, whether that is you know running water, um, you know or, or other elements. And really, part of innovation is flipping the way we think about this instead of it just being a sector, but being what is the value we're really trying to bring people. Taking into account what both
0: of you have just told us about innovation, what do you expect to come out of the Smart Communities Coalition? What does success look
2: like? So for me, the Smart Communities Coalition, what success would look like is if we get microgrid companies to be commercially viable. And what the the refugee settlements offer is a greater population density and an income stream so that the businesses, which have been trying to get their models to work all over Africa and the world, can actually see what's working, what's not working, and tweak their models. So success means giving people in these communities access to electricity, but then also giving the businesses themselves an opportunity to get to the point of commercial viability so they can branch out far beyond the refugee camps and settlements.
3: Well, and I think what I'm hearing Andy say is, actually, success is is when they outgrow us, right? The moment where they outgrow us, that's self-reliant. Out of the 30 um, different innovations that we funded, six of them have already proven to double agricultural yield. One of those innovators, um, actually a South African innovator, um, created something called real gardening, which is, in essence, a vegetable strip seed that requires much less water. I like to call it kind of gardening for dummies because I can actually use it but this was actually picked up by Girl Scouts of America. This is actually something that the Girl Scouts are now gonna sell in addition to cookies. So I think in anything we're doing that's more innovative, there's that moment where you realize I've been outgrown and it's kind of a hallelujah moment, right? You know, the minute I'm not needed is the minute I know that we did something right. So what are the challenges
0: with adopting innovation when the rubber hits the road for the final product?
3: Market
2: acceptance is a huge challenge. We've seen people try to deliver some of the best products available. I've seen this with uh, clean cook stoves. And you go into a market and you haven't really tested it well, and people say, you know, I don't really like the, the way the food tastes. And that, you know, so you just spend all this time developing a product, but you don't test it you go to market and people don't, don't like it. What we've seen with a lot of our partners is the competition that they have is forcing them to make sure that they have the highest quality and brand recognition. Other challenges include you know, people trying to copy and intellectual property issues, but we think that the competition forces people to make sure that they're constantly developing new products and developing their brand so that they develop a customer from early on.
3: A lot of times when we talk about doing things differently, Um, People always think about starting with their next project. You know, our procurement um, team is actually amazing and really helping people navigate that now. There are a million ways you can make small adjustments to the projects we're doing right now that can embrace a new technology, embrace a new partner, leverage the way we do business differently. And so I would really encourage people, don't only think about this as your next thing, think about this as a now thing. Anyone can do this. a lot of people, I think, in the USA don't even know all of the tools that exist to help them. So, for example, PPL, uh, the OAA Innovation Team, the Innovation Design Service are all there to help someone incubate doing something differently. We have geo and informatics teams that can give you different types of data that you may not even know should be influencing the way you think about your work. We have an innovation concierge service in the lab, meaning that if someone is doing a new program and they know something's out there, let's say there may already be an off-grid solution or a different teaching approach. They can actually contact the lab and we will do the legwork to give them options about what exists because that time and bandwidth is so precious. So I think at the end of the day, you know, my hope is that everyone realizes that they are just as empowered to change this agency as I am and that goal of driving things where people can outgrow us is is within reach.
0: Wow. I found this discussion so inspiring and invigorating that yes, we could all be innovators. Thank you both for a great discussion. Thanks
3: so much.
2: Thank you.
0: Hi everyone, we're back with Administrator Green to hear about what's around the corner. We understand that you're traveling to Germany. What will you be doing there?
1: Uh, In Germany, I'll be having meetings with our mission directors uh, from the Middle East and from Africa, look forward to that. Some of the mission directors I haven't met or spoken to face-to-face, so it'll be a good chance for us to get to know each other better, for to learn more about their work, and also learn more about the ways in which uh, we in Washington can help them achieve even more. After that, I'll be heading to the annual Munich Security Conference. And there, uh, a lot of my work will be bilateral outreach, some of our partners from other Uh, development donors, but also from the private sector. Some of our implementing partner organizations should be there, and uh, so I look forward to that. And then after that, I head to London for a US-UK strategic dialogue around development, meeting with our counterparts from DFID. Uh, They obviously see the world very much the same way we do in a number of important ways, and so I'll be looking for ways in which we can jointly undertake uh, projects, uh, share information and also help, uh, I think, strategically lay out a course for such important topics as United Nations reforms.
0: And the Humanitarian Grand Challenge is also on the horizon. And
1: we'll be unveiling our Humanitarian Grand Challenge in London, and uh, I'm very excited, as you know, about the Grand Challenge mechanism. It's one of those ways in which we help to incentivize partnerships with private enterprise, not just in the the for-profit business sense, but other donors and other organizations who are implementing partners. So it's a, a chance to, uh, I think, to light a spark. So I'm, I'm excited about what that will bring.
0: Administrator Green, during the town hall meeting, you spoke about this exciting new communications campaign, USA Transforms. And a lot of people going to the website will see a different look to it. Why was this important to undertake? And what are you hoping that staff get out of this?
1: Well, the enhancements to the website help us in a number of ways. First of it, it makes us better partners. Uh, partners to the American taxpayer because we show what we're doing with precious taxpayer resources and how we're providing a hand up to our partners, not so much a, a handout in the sense that some people I think mistakenly have of, of why we do our work. Secondly. Uh, It's a great place for people to go and potential partners to go to see some of our announcements about such things as our grand challenge announcements. It shows people how they can reach out and partner with us. Uh, And then finally, what I'm excited about is it helps us to tell a good story about the journey to self-reliance, that our work is designed to work with partners to help them take on their own development challenges, recognizing that in some places, their ability to take that on, their challenges on, maybe a long ways off, in other places not so much, but in either case, how we're playing a constructive role uh, trying to help others uh, go from being recipients to partners to donors. That's exciting. The other piece to it, it pulls together uh, the different kinds of work we do and, and shows how it meets this larger mission. So we all do a better job of telling the story and letting people know how uh, we play such a a valuable role in American foreign policy. Uh, So I think it's a great way to partner at all levels.
0: Plus, it looks nice
1: to boot. And it looks nice to boot.
0: All right. Last but not least, a segment that I think both of us may look forward to, and that's answering questions from USAID colleagues, like this one from Jonathan. What are some of the potential unintended consequences related to private sector engagement in the international development context? How can we best mitigate them?
1: So, Jonathan, thank you for the question. You know, I don't see negative consequences for our work with the private sector. What I think we're talking about here that's perhaps new is bringing the private sector uh, into the process of uh, program design and planning earlier. My sense in the past is that sometimes we would design initiatives or launch work, then go to the private sector, and then wonder why it didn't fit perfectly and and neither partner was as satisfied as we could be. Our private sector engagement is meant to extend our work, not contract it. This is not a substitute for the work we do nor is it a replacement for the essential resources that we need. There will never be enough taxpayer resources to take on every challenge in the world, nor would I argue there should be. That's, that's not the way this is supposed to work or, or uh, what our leadership role means. What this does help us to, hopefully, is extend those dollars even further. And I think it also, in many cases, where we're using emerging technologies, it gives us the ability to have better oversight and and that's a promise of course that we make to taxpayers, make to our funders on the Hill and that too will be a way of uh, extending our work and making it go even further. So I don't see uh, downside consequences as long as we're clear about what we look to the private sector for.
0: Here's the next question. There's talk of a divide between humanitarian assistance and development. What do you see as a linkage between these two things and how could that linkage be improved?
1: A uh, great question. Gets into uh, some of the philosophy of, uh, of our approach to the work that we do. You know, when uh, I arrived at USAID, what perhaps I didn't fully appreciate is the level of humanitarian need that's out there. Uh, as we look around the world, it really is, is breathtaking. And so that is taking up necessarily a great deal of our time and energy. First of all, I don't. I think the, the divide is perhaps in that humanitarian work is without regard to uh, level of income on our partners. So for example, the government of Mexico, when Mexico City and the federal government of Mexico reached out to us for disaster assistance after the second earthquake, we didn't ask to see what their income level was that's a matter of friendship and good neighbors, and so we provided humanitarian assistance. That's very distinct from the development work that we do, which we focus uh, on lower income, lower middle income countries, so there's a difference there. But where I think the linkage is, or perhaps um, what fills in the gaps the way I look at, at the world, is in many of the places where we're providing humanitarian assistance. It's not only meeting immediate needs, and responding to a crisis. And it's helping them to bolster their ability to withstand future crisis and future shock. That is a form of development assistance for certain, but we're doing it uh, for humanitarian reasons.
0: As always, thank you for a great conversation, Mr. Administrator, and also thanks to my colleagues all around the world for listening in. We want to hear from more of you, so if you have any questions for the Administrator, go to the MyUSAID portal and include hashtag USAID leads in your question. Until next time.
1: Thank you.